Turn with me once again to Psalm 119, 97 through 104. We've prayed, but I want to pray once more for God's grace. I'm going to read a prayer out of the Valley of Vision, a book of Puritan prayers, and then we'll pray on top of that as well. So please join me in prayer as I read this. Amazing grace is what the title of this prayer is. O thou giving God, my heart is drawn out in thankfulness to thee for thy amazing grace and condescension to me in influences and assistance of thy spirit, for special help in prayer, for the sweetness of Christian service, for the thoughts of arriving in heaven, for always sending me needful supplies, for raising me to new life when I am like one dead. I want not the favor of man to lean upon, for thy favor is infinitely better. Thou art eternal wisdom and dispensations toward me, and it matters not when, nor where, nor how I serve thee, nor what trials I am exercised with, if I might but be prepared for thy work and will. No poor creature stands in need of divine grace more than I do, and yet none abuses it more than I have done and still do. How heartless and dull I am! Humble me in the dust for not loving thee more. Every time I exercise any grace Renewed, I am renewedly indebted to thee, the God of all grace, for special assistance. I cannot boast when I think how dependent I am upon thee for the being and every act of grace. I never do anything else but depart from thee. And if ever I get to heaven, it will be because thou willest it, and for no reason beside. I love, as a feeble, afflicted, despised creature, to cast myself on thy infinite grace and goodness hoping for no happiness but from thee. Give me special grace to fit me for thy for special services and keep me calm and resigned at all times, humble, solemn, mortified, and conformed to thy will. Father, we would ask for special grace upon this service now, that you would conform us to the image of your will. And to you we give all the honor and the glory and the praise. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Psalm 119, 97 through 104. As I said at the beginning, a few minutes ago, during the offertory, we will look at meditation as our subject today. And I suppose that if we had interviewed each person as they came into the sanctuary today and asked them what they know or their view of meditation is, it would be very diverse in the answers that we would obtain. In my own life, I've struggled with just the the word, quote-unquote, meditation. And that normally, I think that comes from the, the, the cultural practices of meditation and then the kind of the influence that may have upon me when I think of the word meditation. Jesus might be coming back. And I think that's a lot of what happens with most Christians. We don't understand all of what meditation is And so when we think about meditating, we don't understand it. We kind of push it to the side in order that we might be gain. We we like to remain uh, comfortable in what we know about spiritual matters. And meditation is oftentimes an uncomfortable thing. And so in order, instead of uh, integrating this into our lives, we push it aside. And we remove ourselves from gaining the great blessing 
that Scripture provides us if we do meditate upon God's Word. The Word of God has the truth about meditation, and by His grace, we will see that today. And for the purpose of clarity, I'm going to have four points to my message. Number one, what is meditation? Number two, why do we need to meditate on God's Word? Number three, practical tools to help us meditate on God's Word. And number four, the benefits of meditation. What is meditation? Why do we need to meditate on God's Word? Practical tools to help us meditate on God's Word and the benefits of meditation. Number one, what is meditation? Let me begin by clearly pointing out what meditation is not. This is what meditation is not. And I'm going to do that by giving you some of the world's definitions. Again, this is not the biblical definition and not the biblical intended purpose for meditation. New Oxford Dictionary. Meditation. To focus one's mind for a period of time in silence or with the aid of chanting for religious or spiritual purposes or as a method of relaxation. If you do a simple search on the internet, you might get something like this. The meditation I'm talking about is not a meditation on something. Rather, it is a state of meditation. So this is what I mean when I'm talking to you about meditation as a state. Meditation does not mean remembering someone. Meditation means to drop everything which is in one's memory and come to a state where only consciousness remains, where only awareness remains. If you light a lamp and remove all the objects surrounding it, the lamp will still go on giving light. In the same way, if you remove all objects from your consciousness, all thoughts, all imagination, what will happen? Only consciousness will remain. That pure state of consciousness is meditation. You don't meditate on somebody. Meditation is a state where only consciousness remains. Erase the world's definitions. They are false. That is not meditation. But yet that is the, the influence upon our minds when we hear the word meditation because that is the prevailing practice of meditation. And it is false. We are made to glorify God. We are made to engage in activities that give us thought about God. And any attempt to remove all thought from our minds is putting us in the category of Romans 1. That's idolatry. Because you, that, that's not your intended purpose. You'd be focusing upon yourself. That is false to, to attempt in any way, shape, or form. Remove any thought of mind. Let me present a definition that mirrors, I think, the intention given in Scripture. Listen to this. This will be our working definition of meditation today. Meditation. The amount of concentration one applies to a specific thought of someone or something that incites change to the conformity of Christ and the glory of God. The amount of concentration one applies to a specific thought of someone or something that incites change to the conformity of Christ and the glory of God. Meditation is when we concentrate our thoughts upon something or someone. Now, it can't just be any something or someone as created to glorify God. It must be upon God in His nature. And it always should be on that which honors God. I would recommend to you a book by Donald S. Whitney, Simplify Your Spiritual Life, Spiritual Disciplines for the Overwhelmed. It's a very simple book. Each chapter is about a page and a half. But this is what Donald Whitney says about 
meditation. Reading is the exposure to Scripture, but meditation is the absorption of Scripture. And it's the absorption of Scripture that leads to the transformation of our lives. And it's the absorption of Scripture that leads to the transformation of our lives. So meditation is not normal thinking. We think about stuff all the time, but it doesn't incite any change. Meditation is when we're thinking about something to the point that it moves us to change. And as believers, those thoughts should always be directed toward God and his ways. So thinking about a dinner tonight probably won't move you to change. Going out into the world and meditating upon God's creation will move you to the praise and glory of God and may allow you to grow in holiness simply by seeing the awe and the beauty of the nature that is around us. So you can meditate upon God in his ways. You can also meditate upon God in his creation. There's many different ways of doing it. Again, meditation is the amount of concentration one applies to a specific thought of someone or something that incites change the conformity of Christ and the glory of God. That's point number one. What is meditation? Point number two. Why do we need to meditate on God's word? In point four, I'm going to discuss the blessings, the benefits that come with meditating on God's word. This point, number two, why do we need to meditate on God's word is not to point out the blessings that come, but to point out the natural inclinations of our hearts. Our memory verse last week was 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Praise the Lord. I am a new man in Christ. I am a new man. But I fight and wrestle and we fight and wrestle and battle the old nature. First Peter 2.11 Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Why do you need to meditate on God's word? Simply, it is this. If you do not meditate on God's word in his ways in his character, in his will, you will meditate upon that which feeds the old flesh. If you do not meditate on God's ways, word, will, character, you will meditate on that which feeds the old nature. Look at 90, verse 97 of our text, Psalm 119, 97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. It, is, it must be noted that you are going to meditate on that which you love the most. So spend a moment here, five seconds, contemplate what do you enjoy thinking about the most to the point that those thoughts incite you to change? What thoughts do you enjoy thinking about the most that incite you to change? Here are some common ones. Lust, fear, worry, pornography, anxiety, jealousy, myself, idols that I have set up in my life. We cannot allow our hearts to deceive us. Because the thought is, what people see of me is the real me. But that's not scriptural. What people see is not the real you. What you meditate upon that incites change is the real you. 
That's what you really love. And that's what you will really be judged for because that's what's really you. And I might desire for everyone to see me the way I want them to see me. But it's very rare that I'm going to see the real you and you're going to see the real me. But don't let yourself be deceived. What is the natural affection and longing of your heart? What, what affection is that, that that moves you, incites you to change? That's who you really are. That's how God sees you. And that's how we will be judged. According to 1 Corinthians 2.16, the new man has the mind of Christ. I have, you have, as believers, the mind of Christ. There is no middle ground between the new man and the old man. There is no middle ground. And a lot of times we like to stand in the middle and sort of do new man things and then we do old man things. That's not scriptural either. You're either over here or you're doing this. We're striving. And by God's grace, we are, we are justified but we, we tend toward this, this old nature, which goes back to what I said. If you do not meditate on God's ways, will, character, word, you're going to meditate on that which feeds the old nature. Now, the old man is probably going to say, hey, that's no fun. Thinking about God all the time? That is no fun whatsoever. That's puritanical. You kidding me? Careful. That begs the question, what are the affections of your heart? Should we not long to meditate on him more than all else? Do we not see that greatest pleasure and joy lies in the thoughts of God and what he's done for us rather than what pleases the old nature? Point number two, why do we need to meditate on God's word? Answer, if we do not meditate on God's ways, character, will, and word, we will meditate on that which feeds the old nature. Point number three. Practical tools to help us meditate on God's word. This point could be an entire lecture and study in and of itself. So I'm not going to go into uh, at length some practical tools. A little research on your own part would probably find more than you can possibly apply. And if you want more than what I say here, feel free to come talk to me afterward. But here are a few simple tools. If in your study of when you are studying scripture or you're reading a passage of scripture and you want to have prolonged thought, here's a couple tools. SPEC, the acronym SPEC, S-P-E-C-K. Beach Approach turned me on to this a few weeks ago in Boys Bible Study. S, is there sin to avoid? Reading a passage of scripture, maybe in your morning devotions, and you want to get, you want to meditate on it, give concentrated thought to this that will incite change to the conformity of Christ and the glory of God. S, is there sin to avoid? P, is there a promise to proclaim? Is there a promise to proclaim and claim? What promise is in this passage? Promises of God. E, S, is there sin to avoid? P, is there a promise to claim? E, is there an example to follow or not follow? Good versus bad examples. C. Is there a command to obey? What is this scripture telling me I must do or not do? 
Is there a sin to avoid, promise to claim, example to follow? Is there a command to obey? And K, S-P-E-C-K, what new knowledge is there to apply? We will go later on this morning in this sermon to the New Testament in James. And we see if you're not applying Scripture, you're a hearer of the Word and not a doer. It doesn't count. We must be doers of the Word. So K, what new knowledge is there to apply? Donald Whitney, again, has the help of recommendation from Philippians 4.8. Whatsoever pure, lovely, etc. What is true about this? What is honorable about this? What is right about this? What is pure about this? What is lovely about this? Admirable, commendable, reputation strengthening about this? What is excellent? What is praiseworthy? Taking Philippians 4.8 and simply applying it in question form to the scripture you may be studying. Now, how might you take these two ways and apply them tomorrow to your daily life? And I have three very simple suggestions. Number one, plan additional time for your devotions. Now, if meditation is not something that you're, you're used to doing and you're just reading scripture and then you're going about your way, you're going to have to plan some extra time for your devotions to do this. And when we get down to point number four, the benefits of meditation, I'm going to try by God's grace, through Scripture, to make it very clear that this is something you must have in your devotions. So take a portion of time. Maybe it's 10 minutes. That would be a good start. Following your time of Bible reading and going to Scripture asking some of these questions that we've just gone over. And this would apply, fathers, to family worship as well. Take 10 extra minutes in your family worship and go a little deeper. Remember Donald Whitney's definition, reading is the exposure to Scripture, but meditation is the absorption of Scripture. And it's the absorption that leads to the transformation of our lives. Exposure is necessary, but absorption is the end goal. Romans 12, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Meditation produces obedience and and conformity with God's will. Meditation produces obedience to and conformity with God's will. So we've got to plan this extra time so that we can meditate, so that we can obey. Joshua 1.8, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall, notice this, meditate on it day and night. Why? So that you may be careful to do according to all this is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. New Testament, James one twenty five. But one who looks intently, here's that meditation, at the perfect law, focus, concentration, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. So practical suggestion number one, plan additional time for your devotions. Number two, make yourself a bookmark. Take a three by five card, Write S-P-E-C-K on one side. Write Philippians 4.8 on the other. Put that in your Bible, where you are in your daily Bible reading. There you have your 10 minutes or so, or whatever time you allot. Pull it out and ask the questions. Number three, look at our text again. Verse 98. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. Now you can memorize and not meditate. And you can meditate and not memorize. But memorization is the best friend or best tool to help you in meditation. Because if you can walk with it and you can lie with it and you can get up in the way with it, as we 
memorizing in Deuteronomy 6, then it's easier for you to meditate. And if you don't have time to memorize a particular passage that is especially meaningful to you on a particular morning, write it out on a card. Put it in your pocket. Read it as you have opportunity. Have that be the prevailing thought upon your mind rather than whatever appeals to the old nature. Now, point number four. Point number one was what is meditation? Number two, why do we need to meditate on God's word? Number three, practical tools to help us meditate on God's word. And number four, the benefits of meditation. Look with me back at the text. There are six descriptions of God's word in this text. 97, law. Oh, how I love your law. 98, your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies. Number three, in verse 99, for your testimonies are my meditation. Number four, 100, for I keep your precepts. Number five, I hold back my feet, 101, from every evil way in order to keep your word. Number six, 102, I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. Law, commandment, testimonies, precepts, word, rules. I'm going to mention three benefits of meditating upon God's word. And I'm lumping all six of those into one category, meaning God's word. And we could, if we had time, break down each one of those and see special implications that are given in God's word for meditating specifically on one of those six different ways it's described here in 97 through 104. But we're going to look at only three benefits of meditating upon God's word. There are many more. And then we're going to spend a little time looking at one aspect of that, specifically God's law and the benefits that come from meditating on God's law. There is scientific proof, and you can find the research all over the place, that focused time on thinking about one thing that incites change, in our definition, change to the conformity of God and the glory of God, actually produces a thicker brain matter. Your brain will actually grow simply by taking the time to do this. And I have seen in my life testimonies of men that have been diligent to meditate and memorize God's word and have done incredibly well in whether it's their business, specifically young men I know that have done incredibly well in school simply by focusing their time upon meditating on God's word and that has bled over to all different applications of life. Looking in the text, three benefits of meditation. Number one, verse 99. I have more understanding than all my teachers for your testimonies are my meditation. First benefit, you have more understanding than all your teachers. This is not... Hey, look at me. I'm smarter than those who are teaching me. Any good teacher will tell you that their greatest delight is when their pupil takes what they have been taught and grows this and excels with it 
farther than they've ever gone before. Matthew Henry says, By meditation we preach to ourselves, and so we come to understand more than our teachers, for we come to understand our hearts, which they cannot. College students, this is imperative that you meditate on God's word. Because any professor worth his salt is seeking to influence you to change. To educate you to the point that you will change the way you think and the way you work. So unless you know your own heart and are meditating upon scripture, you're putting yourself in a dangerous position because you cannot see your own heart. Matthew Henry, we preach to ourselves and so we come to understand more than our teachers for we come to understand our hearts which they cannot. It has been said that the meekest man with a deep understanding of scripture is wiser than some of the greatest minds, philosophers of any day. Number one, more understanding than all my teachers is the first benefit. Number two, you see this in verse 101 and 102. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. It keeps us from sin. The second benefit is that it keeps you from sin. The feet that is being spoken of here is your affections and your desires. It keeps your affections and your desires from sin. If you put one foot on the slippery slope of sin, you will slide a mile before you can probably recover to the point of realizing I've gone farther than I wanted to go and I'm having to stay longer than I want to stay. Abstain from fleshly lusts which war against your soul. Keep your feet back from the ledge. The thought is, let's creep up as close as we can to the world and not fall over. It's not a, it's not a hard line a lot of times. It sometimes can be a gentle slope and then it drops off. Watch it. Don't, don't go there. That's not scriptural. Go back. Abstain. Pull. Remove yourself. Keeps you from sin. Now, there's a very practical outworking here. In the text, 100 and 104. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts, 100, 104. Through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. The mark of a true believer is a hatred of evil and the false way. False ways are not hated unless you keep his precepts, which will give you understanding to hate false ways. And this happens over a period of time as you starve the old nature. But the normal thought is, or the comment is, but starving the old nature is hard. Abstaining from sin is hard. And they say this with a, I can't do it. I can't stop sinning. I can't abstain. This is too hard. Go with me to Psalm 130. Second point keeps you from sin. Here we see 100 and 104 practical outworking. Look with me at Psalm 130. Remember, meditation is a focused thought which incites you to change to the conformity of Christ and the glory of God. Psalm 130. Here would be an excellent verse to memorize. 3 through 4. 
If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Why is there fear with forgiveness? John Piper gives this example. You're 50 stories up. You're standing at the ledge looking over. A wind, a gust of wind comes and in a moment of time you lose your balance and in the last gasp of an effort you get your fingernails on the edge and you're holding yourself there. 50 stories up. At a moment you'll slip and fall to your death. And a man arrives on the ledge and he reaches down and he grabs you and he pulls you back on. And he pulls you into the confines of the building and he wraps a blanket around you and he lets you know you're okay. You've been saved. Now if that mass of energy had just flowed through your body and you're in that building shaking, why are you shaking? It's not because of what just happened. It's because of what just did not happen. Do you follow my line of thinking? You're shaking because not that you were saved, that is glorious, but that you just didn't, you were this close to falling to your death. When we have a hard starving of a sin in our lives, this is hard. What does a child do when he is faced with the temptation, the hard thing, to do something he knows his father does not want him to do. What keeps him from, from doing this thing? It's fear and respect of his father. Now, not a fear of pain, but a, a love and understanding of what he has been saved from. This applies to our Heavenly Father. We so often meditate Upon God's grace, his love, his faithfulness, his mercy, his goodness, his sovereignty. And those are wonderful things to meditate on. But we must meditate on the entire counsel, the entire character of God. And we leave out the wrath of God. And we have such a weak view of sin because of it. We look in the Old Testament and we see Achan who stole just a few pairs of clothes and a little bit of silver and he just lied. What a big deal. Give him some grace. He's stoned to death. The child who's rebellious to his parents, stoned to death. Mark mentioned it in first light. Ananias and Sapphira, a little lie. Dead. Moment's notice. No second chances. Boom. We, when we don't meditate on the understanding of God's entire nature, we miss out an entire grace to understand why we fight sin and the, the strength through that meditation to fight sin. Meditating on the wrath of God leads us to understand what we've been rescued from and gives us motivation to rejoice even more the salvation given by Christ on the cross. A greater affection arises for God that drowns out any sinful affections. Do you meditate on the wrath of God? 
It'll drive you to evangelism. It'll drive you to have mercy upon those that are around you. The wrath of God is not something to play with. It is an all-consuming fire that upon the day of judgment will not be a, a small match to see, will this burn or not? It'll be a blazing inferno. Seven times hotter. The men could not go near it. And this is just a picture in the book of Daniel of this intense fire that will burn the wrath of God. Do we, are we so flippant about the way God sees sin? Starving sin is hard. But when we meditate upon God and his entire character and nature, it keeps us from sin. Benefits of meditation, more understanding than all my teachers. Number two, keeps us from sin. Number three, provides greater pleasure than food or sin. Look with me at verse 103 in Psalm 119. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. If you'd never tasted honey before, put yourself in this position. You'd never tasted honey before. You'd never seen it before. Probably some have that can be put in that position. Not in this room, but different parts of the world. You'd never seen it. You'd never tasted it. You didn't know anything about it. And somebody dropped a glob in your hand. (laughs) Smells weird. It's ooey and gooey and sticky and it's brown. Your first thought is not, oh, this looks so sweet and wonderful. I would love to eat this. And this is exactly the same way it is with Scripture to the unbeliever. He looks at it and says, Ick. But to those who taste and see that the Lord is good, it is wonderful. But we oftentimes don't spend enough time, meditation, tasting of it to the point that we have a greater desire for it than the candy, the junk food we've been feeding our flesh over here. And so there has to be this starving. You have to go on a diet. You have to abstain. You have to remove in order for the honey to become sweet. And for you to have an understanding that the pleasure of this physical comparison doesn't leave you with a tummy ache that the junk food can. Next time you sin. And by God's grace, you don't have to do that. But next time you do, take some time to write down, how do you physically feel? Depressed. Maybe angry. Sorrowful. Don't like myself. Whatever it is, write it down. Then go and serve somewhere. Go help somebody. Go do something without return. Go love unconditionally. When someone reviles you, revile not again. Go, go do something in the name of, in the glory of God. Then write down how you feel. It'll be, it'll be drastically different. Meditation upon God's word, because it produces change, provides greater pleasure, phys- even physically, than any sin could ever provide you. But you've got to taste it. And you've got to spend time to wean yourself, to abstain, to remove 
the taste that you enjoy over here of sin and come and come to the honey. As sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. The question must be asked, do we love all the facets of God's word? We, we mentioned six of them. And we go now to, to one, verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Do you love God's law? I'm not speaking about the, the, the entire word of God. I'm speaking about the law of God. Do not and do. Do you love this? It's part of scripture. There's three things that the law will do. And this is just a, a brief exegesis on what meditation can do for you. Just this one verse. Oh, how I love your law. What does the law do? I'm going to mention three things. The law has the power to punish. When you study the law, you understand that if you do not conform to it, you are punished. The law is a schoolmaster to bring you to Christ. He who loves me keeps my commandments. The inverse of that, he who does not love me does not keep my commandments. The law has power to punish because if you break it, go to James. You've broken all of it and has the power to punish. But for Christians, the law has the power to bless. Because you can go to scripture and you can see God's instructions for how to live life. And you can meditate on them and you can learn them. And you can realize the blessings that are there as we conform ourselves to what he wants us to be like. And there's blessing. There's immense blessing in conforming yourselves, even in the New Testament, the grace that is given us to the do-nots and the do's of Scripture, the law of God. The last thing I mentioned is the law has the power to show you heaven. The law has the power to show you heaven. When you study the law, when you delight in it, go to Scripture and look at the law and heaven will be a full conformity, a full and abundant obedience to all of God's law. That's what it will be like. So you can study and you can say, wow, that, that person's not going to speak evil. I'm not going to have this thought. I'm not going to say this word. I'm not going to hurt this person. This striving, I don't want to do these things. And when I'm in heaven, I'll be able to completely conform to this. Oh, what a wonderful place. And everybody else will be too. What a beautiful picture of seeing God's, the heaven that awaits for us, God's home for us for eternity. We can see exactly what it will look like and what it will feel like. And we can know this because as we, as we meditate on God's law and we conform ourselves to that and, and we have that peace. We talked about this last week. The peace of God comes in obedience. It says we obey God and we have peace. That peace, that moment from obedience through, through meditation, through obedience, that peace that happens, that's a bubble. That's a, that's a tiny picture, a tiny feeling of what heaven will be like, magnified forever and ever and ever. I plead with you to take time out of your day, every day, 
and meditate on God's word. You cannot be a Christian that is truly growing in the conformity of Christ. You will grow if you expose yourself to it, the word. You will grow, but it will be, it'll be minute. It will be slow. But if you, if you want to see God's pouring out of grace, the Holy Spirit come in power upon your life, and this, this leaping forward in your Christian walk, and the abstaining, the power that comes to abstain from sin, meditate on God's word, because that's where the, the application up happens. That's where the absorption comes in and produces change, incites change to the glory of God and to the conformity of the image of His Son. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, Father, I pray that we would see and grow and desire Your Word And that we might have such an affection and a longing and a love to know you and to be changed. To have not the scripture just run over us, but to absorb it into our lives for your glory. I pray for the grace this week to take what Scripture says we are to do this means of grace that you have given us to meditate upon your word, to give concentrated thought to it, that we would take that this week and apply. And we would become not just hearers of the word, but doers also. To play to the praise of the glory of your grace. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.